days ago, we played the song Green Slime Are Coming from the band The Tiki Creeps. That was from their previous album, Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. This time around, I wanted to play something from their new album that came out earlier this year. The album is called Idol Worship, and the song is called 009 Dick Tiki. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with the band's permission. Go check them out over at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com after you're done listening to episode 230 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show and our continued conversation with Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland and Jeff Pollier from The Pollier Graveyard about the movie The Green Slime. The Green Slime are here! All right, they are coming. They are coming soon. Well, hold on one second, though. I want to tell you a little bit more about the Tiki Creeps and let you know that you can hear them live at an event coming up at Roxanne's Cocktail Lounge and New Latin Grill. It's the first annual Long Beach Tiki Social happening August 30th from 12 p.m. to 10 p.m. There will be a Tiki Swap Meet, live Tiki Bands, Tiki Drinks. It is a free event, but you still have to get tickets. Go to RoxannesLounge.com and... I think it probably goes without saying it is a 21-year-old and over-only event. Again, that's August 30th at Roxanne's Lounge at 1115 East World War Road in Long Beach, California. If you go, you'll get to hear the Tiki Creeps, and you'll also get to hear the Ding Dong Devils and Aloha from Hell. Check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you if you're in the Long Beach area. You're going to get to hear the song 009 Dick Tiki at the very end of this episode after we talk about the movie, and after we respond to another voicemail that came in. I'll tell you how you can contribute your own voicemail to the show at the end. But first, our conversation with Jeff and Chris. That's me rubbing my hands together because I'm excited to talk some more about the green slime from 1968 right after this. Out of a world of science and superstition... Comes an adventure of the future that shocks the senses and stuns the imagination. High in the Himalayas, a dangerous search begins for an alien society of abominable snowmen. These are the snow devils, cold-blooded creatures from the ice age of another planet. A species of subhumans who can sabotage the world by turning it into a sub-zero hell. You're aliens? From another world? My world. Atin. An invincible army of frozen fiends. An incredible spectacle of extraterrestrial evil. An impregnable planet guarded by a deadly shield of gravity. The 21st century explodes with excitement and freezes with terror as man challenges the monstrous chill, kill snow devils. From the polar ice cap to the fireball of Jupiter, from the far corners of the Earth to the far reaches of space, you are carried into new orbits of adventure and new dimensions of danger. Science fiction hits a new excitement level with Snow Devils. 
It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Daikaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. It staggers the imagination. War between the planets. Rockets on my signal. Countdown on my out. Are we trapped up here in space? There she is. Good old Gamma One. I want to fight it with my bare hands. Pull out! Retro! Between the planets. It's not a matter of days, but hours. God help us. Unbelievable. Fantastic. Unknown planet heading for collision with Earth. War Between the Planets. Great family film fair. Rated G. Hi, this is Joel Hodson, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio. Why don't you? Helpless Earth. The 21st century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror. The Green. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the green slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. Battle in space against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, the short world of... should talk about the opener which has an asteroid coming at the earth and you gotta wonder if michael bay saw this movie at some point huh, in his childhood cough. <laughs> pardon cough armageddon cough
Really? You think so? <laughs> because it's basically, I mean, if you look at the ship designs in the green slime, you know, the vehicles they're using on the, on the asteroid, they kind of <laughs> look like a slimmed down version on, of what was in Armageddon. For audience who hasn't seen this, uh, when they're on the asteroid, they unload from their spaceship these two rovers that are basically golf carts with drills. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing them justice, though, because they looked really good mm-hmm. and looked really, you know, very functional. So it, it was, you know, again, a really good use of the budget. It was it was a well-realized special effect. Yeah. And the Armageddon connection is these guys are on there, they drill holes into the asteroids, stick in nuclear warheads, and then run off and the thing explodes. Yes. I yeah. loved the I loved that sequence, by the way. We were talking about the special effects. I like watching that asteroid explode. I like the way it was handled, I like the explosion, and I like the editing and the pacing of the sequence. Oh so yeah. a couple of problems with this. One Uh-oh. when they're when they're getting ready to dig one of the holes to put a weapon in, uh-huh. one of the guys says this place looks as good as any. <laughs> I, I would think you would want to be a little more precise. This asteroid is going to destroy the Earth if they don't succeed. So yeah. this place is as good as any. Doesn't seem like a, <laughs> doesn't seem like good enough. Uh, although it turns out it was. So what am I complaining about? <laughs> also, uh, I suppose you both also noticed. There is liquid water on this asteroid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of questionable there. Maybe it wasn't water. Maybe it's something else that has a far lower freezing point. I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of anything exists that would be, you know, on an airless asteroid and still be a liquid. Um, it was the green slime keeping it liquid. Oh, oh is that it? Okay. Okay. Must, must be. Hey, must be. Um, I mean, if and, they can get away with, uh, this looks like a good enough place, they can get away with the green slime heat in the water, too. So, you know. <laughs> as, sure. as the astronauts are rocking away, hoping to beat the explosion, the pilot tells us that they're already doing 10 Gs. A typical person can only handle five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Rankin wants them to speed up some more. And the pilot, who's sitting at the controls, can't even reach the controls. But Rankin gets out of his seat and gets to the front of the cockpit twice. Yeah. Not just once, you're right, twice. He does it once to get their speed going up again and then gets thrown back and hurts his arm. But again, the pilot who's sitting at the controls can't reach the control to put the force field up. And Rankin gets from the back of the cabin. They're now doing more than 10 Gs and gets the force field up. Well, that's why he's the commander. That's why he's the commander. <laughs> that's, well, it, yep, that's that's why he was the only man for the job. God, no, you're. It's so ridiculous. I mean, we're talking about how much we like the effects and the production design. The way the actors react to the G's in the seats, the faces they're making are so over the top ridiculous. It makes what Rankin's doing look even more absurd. I don't know if you've ever been on a tilt a whirl, like at Oaks Park or some other carnival. Mm-hmm. People make that face when they're uh, under the G pressure. Really? Okay. <laughs> now, you know, this is a little over the top, but you're not doing 10 Gs on a tutorial either. This is true. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. They'd launch, those things would launch you into orbit. <laughs> You'd have nothing but goo. <laughs> the, the, the whole thing. Yeah. Red slime. Um, so, so actually, it's not 
in the movie at all, but I came up with an estimation for this. Uh-oh. And that's that the people that go into the space program have either been bred to be tougher somehow, or they've been surgically altered to take more physical punishment <laughs> than a normal person. Uh-huh. And I actually got this from G.I. Joe. What? <laughs> One of the Cobra vehicles was based on the SR-71. It was called the Night Raven. Uh, and the card that came with it for the pilot of the Night Raven said that they had been surgically altered to handle more G-forces than a normal person can handle. And so as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is that same kind of program where they've been, you know, actually physically altered to handle the stresses they may encounter in space. It's not in the movie at all, so it's not canon. This is me making up an excuse for what I saw on the screen. See, this is why I like bringing new people onto the show. (laughs) Because I don't think we've ever talked about Batman. I don't think, you know, Bill Finger. I don't think we've ever talked about G.I. Joe on Monster (laughs) Kid Radio. This is awesome. Now you know, the next time I'm watching this movie and Riken's walking his way up you know the aisle way to the button during that extreme g-force i'm just going to be sitting there waiting for him to scream cobra (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that that's awesome (laughs) oh man oh my goodness the G-Force situation aside, I do like the way the pacing is put together. The countdown clock is one of those little flip paper clocks. I, I love that. I love the look and the design. I love the dial clock on the golf cart drilling <laughs> yes. m- mechanism. I had an alarm clock just like that when I was, when it was in the 60s. <laughs> I'm like, that's my clock. Seriously, that was the clock I had in my bedroom that was an alarm clock. Speaking of clocks, time is mentioned quite often, mm-hmm. and they never mention a time zone. Some of the cast is on Earth at Lowry Base. The others are on uh, Gamma 3 Space Station. Others are on the ship over in the asteroid. I just kind of presume they're talking Greenwich Standard Time. Sure. <laughs> uh, and also, even though we've talked about how most of the cast is American, with the exception of the doctor, uh, or, well, the other doctor. There's Dr. Halverson, the guy. There's Dr. Lisa, whatever. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Lisa Benson, mm-hmm. uh, who's a medical doctor, and she's Italian. But most of the cast is American. However, they never say these people are Americans. And, in fact, the agency they work for is the UNSC, which is never spelled out. They talk about Space Central, but we kind of read into it that it's United Nations Space Central. So it's supposed to be an international space agency is, how, is what I read into it. And I think they probably did that to appeal to a greater worldwide audience. Sure. Don't have it just be Americans. Have it, like Star Trek, be a worldwide thing. Sure. Yeah, but considering the only person who isn't basically an American, you know, looks like an American is Lisa. Yeah. It's not really all that inclusive for being the United Nations space command. Right. Yeah. But I can it, it, falls, it falls down there, but that's the casting, not the script. Right. True. And True. in terms of production, I know a lot of the actors' voices were dubbed in this. So mm-hmm. it does make me wonder if maybe if they release it in Italy, they would go back in and, and go and have, a, you know, Italian cast dub all the voices so that it is still, mm-hmm. you know, applicable to their culture and their demographic, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, which yeah. is, is how a lot of the European and Italian films were made back in the 60s anyway. You know, I know this is an American production, but it's not uncommon to have that happen quite a bit with dubbing. 
Well, and, mm-hmm. and undoubtedly it was dubbed in Japan because there was a Japanese release, mm-hmm. which was shorter. Oh, yeah. I've heard this, about that. No, yes. I, like the, 13 the, minutes. Yes. The American version is 90 minutes long. The Japanese version is 77 minutes long because they cut out all the garbage of the romantic triangle. Hmm. Okay. I was going to ask if you knew the difference because I'm curious to see the Japanese cut, but if that's all that's different. Yeah, that's basically all I was able to find is um, they just basically cut out the love triangle and made the movie much more action-oriented. Although, according to IMDb, there were additional scenes with uh, Lisa and Elliot before the credits roll. Oh, not really. Really? Wow, okay. But it, according to IMDb, it changes the ending into a more downbeat one than the optimistic one that we end up with. But I didn't really think the ending in the one I saw was very optimistic. No, although there's one thing I will add. I'm glad Lisa doesn't end up in Rankin's arms at the end. Yeah. Yeah, at least they didn't go there. Yeah. Yeah, and that would have been the easy way out, and I'm glad they didn't. I thought it was a brave choice not to go that route. Well, he doesn't deserve it. No. No. <laughs> no. And I, he can't handle a relationship anyway. I mean, really, it's Rankin, right? Yeah. You know, he, he's not bred for that sort of thing, based on what we've seen in this film. I think I would have liked to have known more, a little bit more about the background between Rankin and Elliot and what exactly happened. The photo in the general's office at the very beginning, mm-hmm. is that a picture of Rankin and Elliot? Yeah, yes, it's Frank and Elliot in the general. It didn't connect with me that when I watched it this time around, and I kept meaning to go back and double-check, and I just didn't get around to it. So they clearly have a relationship. I'd like to know a little bit more. Maybe somebody should make that Green Slime prequel for me. No? Well, that, well there <laughs> I, wouldn't I, be any Green Slime yet. That's true. You know? Well, I think, and again, I'm reading something into it that isn't there, but I suspect the Green Slime creatures were a weapon that was deployed. Ah. The reason I have to think of this is because as they're on the asteroid, they've set the bombs, and then they're told the asteroid has accelerated. Asteroids don't just accelerate on their own. It has to be propelled somehow. True. So I'm reading into it that some outside force saw what was happening and decided to step up the timetable uh, in some way beyond our capabilities uh, to get the asteroid going faster. Yeah. Now, the, oh, this sorry, sets no. up a possibility of a sequel or a prequel, you know, something else to tell us more about this story. And that would be interesting because if you remember the opening, I mean, here is this futuristic society with flying cars and everything, and they don't notice an asteroid sneaking up on Earth until they've got less than 24 hours to stop it. Yeah. You know, and, and all they could say is we don't know what knocked it off course. If it was the first step in an alien invasion, that would make sense. Yeah. I'm wondering if we're spending more time talking about the story than Bill Finger, Ivan Ryder, Tom Rowe, or Charles Sinclair <laughs> did. I, I'm sure, but although I do have <laughs> one thing I do need to mention. Uh-huh. I have not seen a space station in a movie with as big a liquor storeroom as Gamma 3. <laughs> <laughs> because when they get done blowing up the asteroid and decontaminated, there's champagne everywhere. All the women on that space station are suddenly in mini skirts. Well, did, didn't you see Quark behind the bar? 
Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the UNSC knows how to party. Uh, yeah. I mean, my um, goodness. This is where they break out all the other women, because up until this point, I think the only woman we ever saw was Lisa, right? Uh, a couple of nurses, I think. Did you yeah, see some nurses? Was, but yeah. there, were, there were female, there, there were women personnel in the ship, not as prevalent as the men, but they were there. Until the mm-hmm. party time, and then break out the skirts. And then they're about 50-50, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, really? Well, Where not, did this come from? Not 50-50 enough for Rankin, because he has to dance with Lisa. Yeah, well, yeah, which, because you know. he's Dick Rankin. As we established, <laughs> he is a dick. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the extras, though, because one thing the movie doesn't skimp on is the extras. This is a well-staffed space station. Yeah. Lowry Base on Earth is well-staffed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the staffers, you know, the background people, were U.S. military personnel who were stationed in Japan. And they were brought in to be basically military personnel in this movie. As much as we make fun of the theme song, the montage that's going on behind that is all, you know, military space station stuff. And they look like professionals doing professional jobs. If you hit mute and just watch the images, it's a really well done montage mm-hmm. uh, of, of a working space agency. Yeah. That that is, you know, in emergency preparations. You know, they obviously knew how to infuse some realism in those scenes, especially, you know, especially since they were from the military base. They could act it better than, say, someone like you or I brought off the street where we might over overdo it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know. Or, you know, we're just, you know, growing up watching Star Trek, we're just sitting there, you know, flipping switches like Mr. Sulu. <laughs> <laughs> What's the... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I I agree with that observation quite a bit. That, well, that the is Sula no one, knock yeah. on George Takei. No, no absolutely not. A wonderful job, but he didn't have the air that these people had because they had experience actually doing things in a military setting. Right, they all felt legit. Yeah. The extras mm-hmm. casting, don't know who was involved with that. I don't know if anybody knows at this point who was involved with that anymore. But but frankly, the extras tend to be better than the leads. There are a few times when I'm interested in like going with that guy down that hallway. I'm done with Rankin. I want to go over here with the, <laughs> you know, I want to see what's happening here because those guys look interesting. Those are characters that have stories I want to know. Yeah. And, and when they go to try and capture the first slime monster, mm-hmm. those guys, the extras really looked like they knew what they were doing, even though they were holding on to, you know, obviously prop guns. They still <laughs> carried themselves with enough authority that you believed those were weapons and they could shoot them, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I think I think getting extras off the military base really benefits the movie. It benefits the movie and makes the movie feel like it's set in a world that already exists that didn't exist just mm-hmm. for this film. So mm-hmm. there's a level of realism and tangibility that we can hold on to and and really kind of lose ourselves in for, what, 90 minutes or so. This yeah. is a well-realized world that there could be more stories set in because, I mean, it, it, it does exist before and after the beginning and ending credits. They really established a sense of, you know, this place exists, mm-hmm. which does counteract the goofiness sometimes of some of the uh, space station shots, you know, because <laughs> it yeah, doesn't look all that great. Or all from, that the outside, the, uh, from the, the outside. Inside from sets, the outside. The inside sets look great. The outside, no, it looks terrible. It looks like a model, a very yeah. well-lit model. 
Yes. Yeah. And and I think maybe that took some of it away. If it was maybe a little darker, wasn't as brightly lit, it would have looked a little better, maybe. Actually, I was going to compliment the lighting because it is only lit from one side. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, because, yeah, it, the only light source going on the model is from the sun. So That's you fair. actually have half the station in shadow. Still too much. <laughs> it's still too much. It's too bright. But at least they only had the one light source. I did want to compliment right. that. It really feels like everything that went into a lot of the technical side of this film, there was a lot of thought and care put into this. We're talking about the extras, the background, the way the set looks, the production design, some of the creative choices, the acting. <sighs> if only they had put that much effort into the casting. Yeah, that, that really is it. I think I think Robert Horton really does drag it down a little bit. Yeah, And, he's and, got- and his Jack Lord hair. Oh, God, yeah, that hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think the actor drags it down. I think the way his character was written, he had no other choice. Okay. For me to not like that character as much as I do, I think it's a testament to the actor. Hmm. This guy really gives an air of, I know what I'm doing, even if I screw up. You know, that he gives it an arrogant, he gives the character an arrogance that is just so annoying. And I think if someone else had portrayed that character, it might not have been there and you would have just figured the guy's an idiot. But <laughs> the way well, another Horton's playing it, you really dislike the character. I, another actor may have tried to infuse more humanity into the character, which may have actually made the character not work as well. Yeah. On the other hand, it's 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 a bold story choice to try and give us a character that we don't like. This is the main character, and I think we're supposed to root for him oh, because sure he's we, saving the Earth. I'm sure but we we're. Not, we're not supposed to like him. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the way the character is written for that time. You were supposed to like him because he was the manly man that got the job done, you know. Uh, but let's be honest, we're here in Portland. We're <laughs> not, you know, we're hanging off the St. John's Bridge to protest, an, <laughs> you know, a, a shell in their icebreaker. So yeah. we're not going to have the same, yeah, he's he's a guy that gets things done attitude towards this character that well, someone know. else would or that someone in that time back in the 60s would have. The, the, the contemporaries for this character, though, are Commander West on Lost in Space and Captain Kirk on Star Trek. And they were also both manly men, tough guys, but they have the humanity, too. We actually like them. Yeah. I Like I said, I don't know if it's a sign of, you know, just the time or not, but I, I give credit to Horton for, for delivering a character who is just so unlikable and yet doesn't veer into overdone parody. Mm, You know, I mean, I could have seen that character descending into the buffoonery of Zap Brannigan or something. (laughs) At least Horton kept him realistic enough to be as unlikable as the character is. Well, and I think the way Richard Jekyll as Commander Elliot reacted to him Civil, but with this layer of poison right underneath. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, he's being with Rankin because he has to. And most of the time, he keeps his cool about it. But you can tell that he just wants this guy off his station, out of his life, 
for good. And Ooh. eventually it gets to the point where he takes a swing at him. And I'm like, yay. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it's about time. Yeah. Right? yeah. Let him and have of course, it, man. With Rankin being the manly man, he not only makes Elliot miss, but punches him instead. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank goodness he didn't hit that hair, though, of Rankin's, because I think he would have <laughs> broke his fist on it. That, that, that hair doesn't even move in 10 Gs. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I was trying to do some checking to see if they had worked together before, because I, I did kind of like the chemistry between him and Jekyll, and the only connection between the two that I found was that they both appeared on episodes of Murder, She Wrote, but different episodes not obviously the same episode no. no not although that would have been awesome oh god that would have been amazing <laughs> but i i did like their back and forth the one guy who's clearly an alpha and the other one who wants to be the alpha but damn it the other guy is yeah yeah i did like that i i thought you know the the girl luciana paluzzi was okay she was serviceable for what she was but really it's not her story she was the eye candy yeah yeah, but, and, wait, and and her, you know, eventually she gets into uniform and looks professional. But the first few scenes where we see her, uh, they're really driving home that this is a future story because her outfit is metallic, it's shiny, and it's showing a lot of cleavage. <laughs> well, you, you'd almost think it was designed by William Ware Thies. <laughs> <laughs> My only disappointment is that, like, like we've mentioned. You know, they've got this woman who looked so credible at nearly killing James Bond two years ago, and she is reduced to being just the damsel in distress who can occasionally throw a uh, stretcher at a creature. Well, later on, when she is caring for the patients, she seems to be competent as a doctor. Yes. And they don't really say that she's the CMO of the station, but that's the impression I had. I, I think Dr. Halverson is a scientist, not medical doctor. Yeah, no, I, I, I get uh, the feeling she's and, in charge and of Dr. the medical wing. Dr. Benson is in charge of the medical wing. I, I wish it had been stated better because it would have been more impressive for the time. Yeah. But it didn't help that when she's introduced to us in the story, she's introduced as concerned girlfriend. Who breaks protocol to get in with the possibly contaminated people. Right. It, it yeah. doesn't yeah. help. But later on, she has given a little bit to do, but... Not nearly as much as Rankin or, or Elliot or really anybody else. I love the cars in this thing. I, I, I keep meaning to get to the cars. The cars that they have running around the space station, I love them. I want one. <laughs> well, and it, it helps give the space station a sense of scope of largeness. Yes. Because you actually need vehicles to get equipment around through the station. And yeah, and that, that makes total sense. But those vehicles, God if they're coming around a corner, you better flatten yourself against the wall. <laughs> yes, you better. Because those things are wide. Yeah. Yep. And I love that yeah, each one hey. has a specific task. Bring the light car here. You know, that's what <laughs> I want a car that just does nothing but bring lights around everywhere I go. Well, and they're so large, it kind of makes you wonder how they get around some corners, too. That's true. So I, I know we jumped from actress to car, like, immediately, but I'm a big fan of those cars I want once. I want action figures again. I want little matchbox cars of the cars from, <laughs> from the green slime to run around on my desk while I'm at work. Oh, no, no, no. The Lego yeah. green slime kit. Oh, that'd be great. I, that would be awesome. Now, if I was going to have a, a toy of anything from this, I would like the shuttles that they escape in. Yeah. Not the rockets we saw earlier in the film, but the shuttles they escape in look really good. And mm-hmm. They're like, you know, precursors to America's own space shuttle program. Mm-hmm. You know, a central fuselage with delta wings. 
they, they appeared to have, you know, they weren't used in this, but they appeared to have uh, rotary blades in the wings <laughs> that I guess would be used for landing on Earth or something. Yeah, you wonder like, if they have hover capabilities because of that. But I, I thought they looked really good. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. And, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt with that. No. But yeah, you, you wonder if they could hover because they've got yeah. those props. Yep. For what this movie is, it really is a, a very well-realized production. I love the design. I love all the sets. It's a fun film. You know, we were talking about how it does take a dark turn. There are some dark moments. There's the one guy who gets electrocuted and he's screaming. You can still hear the scream, but you mm-hmm. look at the body and he's just a skeleton uh, or, or near skeleton. There's the one guy who falls off the ledge and when he lands, blood comes shooting out of his space helmet all over the floor. Yes. Yes. That, that oh my was, gosh. That yeah. was shocking. I was like, wow, that's that kind of movie now. Yeah. And, and yeah, some of the electrocuted uh, victims look really nasty. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember right, this is actually a G-rated film. Well, this was supposed to be a family film. Ratings meant different things back then. This That's is true. true. This is true. Yeah. I was surprised when I read that there are only six on-screen human deaths in this movie because it seems like there's a lot more. Yeah, it does. Yes. But apparently that's that's as much as as we actually see. Now there's countless alien deaths because when the station goes into the Earth's atmosphere, they are burned to ashes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is one point where I wish something had been added. I wish they had said they were aiming the station at Earth's atmosphere because when the station first starts moving, and boy does it move, I thought they were aiming for the sun. <laughs> and I'm going, it would take, at subluminal speeds, it's going to take months to reach the sun. Yeah. True. It's burning up way too quickly, and then we see, oh no, it's headed for Earth. Okay. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, that is a spectacular model burn. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it is. when they started off, it's kind of goofy looking because the model's shaking back and forth on the central axis. Like it has no, well, of course, no one's at the steering wheel. Yeah, no attitude but, control. Yeah, but once it starts burning, it's like, wow. Yeah. Just looks great. <laughs> it really does. We, we talked briefly about the Armageddon thing. There's a little bit of alien in this too, right? I'm not alone oh, in this one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I saw a little bit of Alien, a little bit of Armageddon. A whole lot of, well. We're probably giving way too much attention to Armageddon. Well, but- <laughs> well it's so obvious. And, and you, have to realize, so obvious. you have to realize, this isn't the first time Bay's pulled something like this. His movie, The Island, basically got uh-huh. sued by a low-budget filmmaker because it was a direct ripoff of a movie called Parts the Clonus Horror. Hmm. And if you watch parts it's basically the same storyline it's just michael bay took the story and threw in a whole bunch of action sequences and they actually had to settle out of court for like according to what i found like a seven number figure with the filmmakers wow yeah so i don't know if we're reading too much into it It, he did this once why wouldn't he have tried it again he just didn't include green slime in Armageddon. <laughs> that would have made that movie much more fun. Oh my God, yes. Bruce Willis versus the Green Slime. Yeah. Oh, that would have been cool. <laughs> I don't know. I might be rooting for the Green Slime at that point. Yeah, yeah. well. <laughs> oh, I would have saved the world a whole mess of trouble. Um, <laughs> the Green Slime won in that movie. <laughs> I'm just thinking about, yeah. <laughs> so, Jeff, you mentioned seeing it on DVD. This is pretty readily available now. For a while, it wasn't available on DVD. 
too easily, but Warner Brothers, I think, is the one that put it out as part of their archive collection, mm-hmm. which is part of their MOD initiative, which means no special features. Uh, you can skip ahead by 10-minute increments on the film. There's no chapter breaks mm-hmm. or anything like that. But from all accounts that I've come across, this is probably the best the movie's ever looked on a home release. It, uh, yeah, I will say the archive DVD, which is the one I have, mm-hmm. looks beautiful. Mine says it's a remastered edition. I don't have, you know, newest and fanciest TV, but it's sure a darn sight better than the one I was watching in the 1970s. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would hope so. Yeah. And, 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 well, the TV you had before this was a terrible picture. But this one, you know, it looked, it looked so good. Mm-hmm. And, and again, visually, there's nothing wrong with this movie. You know, the creature's a little wonky, but that's just rubber suits. Visually, this is a great looking film. Yeah, I mean, even the monsters, yeah, we could say they're all latex suits, but there's textures and color changes within the suit that Mm -hmm. really look great, that give the monster a little more otherworldliness. You know, if Mm -hmm. you look at the chest of the monsters, they've got these little bubbly things on it. Yeah. What are those? But I was kind of wondering if those were some other kind of eye. Yeah, because you know, they have the, the the one really big red eye. These, these creatures are cyclopean. Well, appear to be cyclopean, but they do have these bubble things on their chest. That I was wondering if are another kind of visual input. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know, but the fact that the DVD's picture is nice enough to really give you that detail mm-hmm. um, says a lot for it. It's it's definitely you know even though there's no special features, even though you don't even get a trailer, it's still really worth buying. Now, if you do want a special feature, listeners, uh, you can go to YouTube and look up the Green Slime Mystery Science Theater. Because yeah. when Mystery Science Theater 2000 was being created, they did like a 15-minute demo to kind of sell the idea. It's not the MST3K that you're used to if you've ever watched MST3K. It's very primitive. But they are doing mm-hmm. the Green Slime. So that's definitely worth spending 15 minutes of your life to check out. Yeah, what it looks like is a demo reel that they were giving to someone. Yes, you know, which is, is exactly our, what it was. This is the demo yeah. reel. Here, take a look. We can do it. How cool would it have been, though, to have those guys kind of do a Green Slime episode? I, I think That's I'm right. amazed they never went back to it. Uh, yeah, it never was covered by them, yeah, was yeah. it? I, probably rights issues. Yeah, it's not in the public domain, no. so it's not something they could get their hands on easily. Which is most, most, if not all, of what they did was public domain stuff. Especially at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, when they had no money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it would have been kind of fun to to watch those guys kind of have their way with this movie. Mm-hmm. Just have their way with Rankin. Oh, yes. Because you know they would. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fun one. I recommend it. I think people should get their hands on it. There have been some DVD releases overseas. There's an Italian release and a Japanese release. But again, no real special features to speak of outside of maybe a stills gallery or something like that. I wouldn't mind seeing a documentary about the making of this movie just to spend more time in those sets. But all you really need is this DVD and you're going to have a good afternoon. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that you two enjoyed this movie so much and we were able to come together and talk about it. Anytime I get to talk about the Green Slime's a good day. (laughs) You know, I, I mentioned earlier, I knew Chris was a fan of the Green Slime because uh, was it last year at the Lovecraft Film Festival, Chris, that we saw that poster for a sci-fi film festival? Oh, yeah. Because that's where it first came up for me. Because 
there's a sci-fi film festival trying to be put together here in town, and I, I don't know if that ever happened or not. I never saw it happen. But the poster they put up, they had various pictures from classic sci-fi films, and one of them was an image from the Green Slime movie poster. Mm-hmm. And, and that caught my and Chris's attention immediately, like, oh, my God, they're going to show that. No, they never did. It was all a bunch of uh, original sci-fi, you know, new stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Chris's eyes lit up so big. We were talking about the green <laughs> slime. I mean, I, I, w- I was going to go there. I would have paid anything just to see that movie if they were going to screen it on the big screen. It would have been a Monster Kid Radio crash. We would have made it happen. And then, Jeff, uh, you mentioned Green Slime when we were talking at The Joy. I was like, man, this is this is perfect. We've got to do it together. we got to talk about this film. Yes, I'm so glad we have. Yeah. So, Chris can be found at the Shadow Over Portland. Shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. Near weekly updates letting everybody know about what's happening in the horror community in the Pacific Northwest. Yep, I'm going to start trying to pull together as well a um, separate page for the haunted houses in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Ah, it's getting to be time for that. And maybe if you do that, you can include the Pull Your Graveyard if it's coming back this year. Oh. It, it, it is, and uh, I've already started buying materials to make some new headstones for this year's display. Oh, awesome. uh, One thing I'm going to do this year, we're doing at least one. I, I'm trying to in, encourage my family members to come up with others. We're going to have some actual historical figures uh, have tombstones for them. Nice. And uh, the one I'm going to do is going to be a double headstone, and it's going to be my own ancestors, uh, Peter and Mary Pallier, who were the first of my family in America. Oh, nice. Ooh. Yeah, so the Pallier graveyard will actually have a Pallier tombstone in the graveyard this year. Wow. If I if I may, you're going to have to uh, send me a link uh, to that so I can put it on the calendar. Yeah, it's on Facebook. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, it's yeah. on Facebook. We'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. Uh, just look up uh, Jeff by his last name, P-O-L-I-E-R, and then Graveyard, and you can find it there. I'm yep. writing this down right now. <laughs> if yeah. I don't, I will forget it. So I was introduced to Jeff by uh, another listener of the show at uh, a Joy Cinema you know, showing of something. And he told me about the graveyard. And, you know, later that month, I went to uh, out to his house and took pictures from the front yard. So yeah, it was actually October. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, was a, you, it was a cool setup. You don't mind me including it on the uh, calendar, do you, Jeff? Oh, not at all. Please do. And, you know, so just like the Davis graveyard in Milwaukee, it's, you know, a display people could just drive by or, you know, get out and, and walk and check out the headstones in a little more detail. Great. It's very cool. I love seeing that kind of stuff. But Jeff, you're also heard on another podcast. I am. I'm part of a Doctor Who related podcast called The Oncoming Storm, where we don't so much talk about the Doctor Who TV episodes. We talk about all the media that has come from it. So uh, we talk about books and comic books and especially the audio stories that are done from uh, Big Finish that feature, you know, the original cast members. So you have Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, Paul McGann, and they're actually starting to get rise to some of the newer stuff too. So we're going to be having Torchwood stories coming on audio now with uh, John Barrowman oh, and wow. stuff like that. We review all these spin-off stories uh, as opposed to reviewing the television stuff because there's plenty of podcasts to review the television stuff. We cover the other stuff. It's called The Oncoming Storm? The Oncoming Storm, which is a reference to the Doctor himself. Okay. And that's available, I'm assuming, on iTunes. And is there a website? There is. I don't know it, but you can find The Oncoming Storm on Facebook also. Oh, okay. How about TheOncomingStorm.Libson.com? That would be it. There we go. 
Yep. I will make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well. Jeff, I know this is completely out of the blue, but I got to ask your opinion because I'm going to be covering it here on the show. The Peter Cushing Doctor Who films. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, taken independently, thumbs up. Okay. For an actual Doctor Who fan, thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to be talking about Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD with Casey Criswell in the new future. So, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so I'm, I wanted to get your thoughts on it because now that's the second one, right? Yeah, it's the better of the two, I think. So yeah, so that has Bernard Cribbins, mm-hmm. who would go on to have an important role in the new Doctor Who series. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, he plays uh, Don and Noble's grandfather, Wilfred Mott. Okay, and he's amazing, and he's pretty good in in this old movie too. He's a, a cop, a Bobby, I suppose. Well, he's not a Bobby; he's not in uniform. Anyway. Um, <laughs> And I, I remember reading somewhere that there was actually talks at one point back, like in the seventies of him being the doctor. Really? Yeah. So anyway, uh, I expect that will be a good time. Awesome. I'm looking forward to talking about that one because it yeah. is the better of the two movies by yeah. far. All right. So we'll make sure there's links to everything that you guys have got going on. If you've got any events that you want to talk about on a future Monster Kid Radio, please don't hesitate to drop me a line. Chris, of course, we'll have you back on. And Jeff, I'm interested in making you a regular here. So anytime you want to come on and talk about another monster movie, the door's always open. All right. Sounds good. Love being here. Thanks for inviting me. And Jeff, yes. really nice talking green slime with you. Yes. Thank you, Chris. It was nice to meet you, too. This was fun. Definitely. Head over to monsterkidradio.net. Check the show notes for this episode. You'll find links to Chris's website, as well as the podcast Jeff's involved with, and of course, the Pull Your Graveyard, which is something I'm going to hit up this Halloween season. If you're in the Portland area, I highly recommend you check it out. It's very cool. As are Chris and Jeff for being the guests this week. Thank you so much. And you heard Jeff next week on Monster Kid Radio. I've got Casey Criswell lined up. And we'll talk about that here in a second, but we are going to talk about Doctor Who. But that's next week. This week, still have a voicemail to play. Hello, Darren. Joe Lydon here, just commenting on the last couple of episodes. In particular, I really enjoyed the episode about uh, monster mashups. And uh, I really got to look for that Tales of Dracula film. I have never seen that. And I've heard of it from your show, but I do really want to seek it out. I really like the monster mashup episode. You guys did a great job. And I pretty much agree with everything you guys said about your top three. And I'm real glad you went into the Toho films. Okay, I consider myself a monster kid, but I consider myself a giant monster kid. I'm a huge Toho giant monster fan. And, and yeah, the Royal Monsters, King Congress, Godzilla, they're definitely monster mashups. And, uh, well, you put it so well, too. You, we live in an age where we're going to get a new Toho film, Godzilla film, and we're going to get a new Americanized Godzilla film. And that was well said. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm so glad we live in an age where we're getting that. But, uh, yeah, you guys did a great job. Like I said, I agree with everything, uh, pretty much everything you said. Although, you know, Bryson and I meets the Wolfman, I don't know if you mentioned that or not, uh, but, you know, that is really not a really great film. I mean, it's okay. I'll take Adam Costello meets Frankenstein over Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I'll take either one of the house films over Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. It's not a particularly great film. But it's good, and it's good. I enjoy it, but um, I think some of the a couple of the later ones are a little bit better. But uh, once again, great episode, and uh, keep up the great work, man. And got a big fan here in Pennsylvania, and I will keep listening. Take care. Bye. Thank you for calling in, Joe. And yeah, I have found that when it comes to Monster Kids, 
we embrace the giant monsters from Japan, the kaiju films, the Godzillas, the Gammas, the Daimajins, which is awesome, the Rodans, the Mothras, all of that. I love it. I love me a good giant rubber-suited monster. I love listening to podcasts about them. I love reading about them. I love watching movies with them. And in the future, we're going to talk some more about them here on the show. I actually already have a recording done with the Gigantic Project's Tony Wendell, where we're going to talk about the War of the Gargantuas. And Stephen D. Sullivan and I have been talking about doing a couple of kaiju films as well. It's just that scheduling has been a real bear lately. I've had a lot of stuff going on on the non-podcast front with you know my family's health. I've got a sick cat and a sick wife. And anyway, lot, lots of things going on. But a good giant monster movie, hell, a good monster movie, period, keeps a smile on my face. Although, I am going to disagree with you a little bit when it comes to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I really, really enjoy that movie a lot. I feel like Lon Chaney does an amazing job portraying the Talbot character in this film. He continues the arc that was started in the first film. As a Frankenstein movie, I don't know how well it holds up, to be completely honest. But as a Wolfman movie... I dig it so much. The resurrection scene when Talbot comes back from the dead, that sequence alone gets me going. I can sit and watch that sequence and be satisfied. Now, I don't just turn the movie off after that sequence because I I dig the whole thing. I hear where you're coming from, though, and I do like throwing in more monsters into the mix. I wish that... The House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein films, while they're good, I do wish that the three big monsters had more of an opportunity to interact with each other. I feel like House of Frankenstein is a kind of a part one and part two where Dracula's not in it a whole lot. And then with House of Dracula, Dracula shows up, but then he kind of disappears. Yeah, he inhabits another body, but it's not the same. So I'd like to see a bigger monster mashup of the big three. At some point. And that's why I like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein so much, because they do all get to interact. And listeners, he's referring to episode number 224 of Monster Kid Radio, when we had director Joe DeMiro on and we talked about our favorite monster movie mashups. Joe DeMiro is the man behind the movie Tales of Dracula, which came out this year, which is a retro throwback movie monster mashup, bringing Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and a Wolfman all together on screen. We've had Joe on the show repeatedly before and after the release of the movie. Check out monsterkidradio.net for previous episodes. Again, thank you for calling in, Joe. And if anybody else wants to call in with some thoughts about Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, well, our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Listen to me, Frank. I saw my father become obsessed by his power. He died a horrible death. There's no need for us all to storm after her. She'll come in if I ask her. Why should we treat her so fancy? She's a Frankenstein.
tomorrow comes a thrilling new television series, Lost in Space. Here are the amazing adventures of a group of space pioneers marooned on an uncharted planet. Adventure as challenging as tomorrow, as far out as the stars. Spectacle beyond imagination as the astronauts struggle for survival in a strange new world where incredible dangers seem to wait at every turn. Intriguing, thrilling, challenging. These are the adventures you will share. Lost in Space. Something frightening is happening at a secret place called Clonus. Will the truth ever get out? You all know what I stand for. I think it's time that I started paying back this country for some of the good things it's given me. It's all very step-by-step, um, -step, standardized, practical. Lena, we're being watched. Sue, what are you talking about? But why would they watch us? For what reason? I don't know. Lena, there's something strange happening here that we're not allowed to know about. There's something wrong we've been busted into. Clonus, a place where science and nightmare merge. What are you worried about? They can't get away. Where no one can escape the horrors that await them. Suppose Churchill or Roosevelt have been able to live for nearly 200 years and still function for the world. Or Stalin. Or Hitler. No! Your ear is just like mine. I just noticed, noticed. Even I'm expendable if it means keeping Clonus alive. They'll stop at nothing to keep it a secret. Because at Clonus, the only thing they don't use is the scream. Peter Graves, Dick Sargent, Timothy Donnelly, Paulette Breen, Keenan Wynn. Parts, the Clonus Horror. The motion picture that will steal your heart and your liver and your kidneys and your eyes and your lips. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of episode 230 of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the show. Thanks for being a Monster Kid and helping to spread the word about these movies that we love so much. And I'd appreciate it if you could help spread the word about Monster Kid Radio. If you are a Facebook user and you follow me on Facebook or you follow Monster Kid Radio or are part of the Monster Kid Radio group, I'd like to ask you to share the post about this episode. If you are a user of Twitter, now granted I'm not on Twitter all that much, but I think there are posts to Twitter still being made whenever there's a new podcast that goes up, well retweet it. Are you a user of a monster-friendly message board? 
Reddit, anything like that? Well, tell people about Monster Kid Radio. The more, the merrier, the more voices we can get on the show through feedback. Perhaps you can call in like Joe did or like Steve did a couple of days ago. Again, our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail. Dot com. Now, this is available at our website, which is at monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There are links to our Facebook group. There's a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show a little bit financially and help us keep the lights on here at Monster Kid Radio headquarters. And depending on what milestone we hit, maybe even bring in some bonus features, some bonus content, some bonus events, something that you can get as a bonus now, though is a subscription to the Monster Rally Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter. Now, this goes out once a month. Typically, it goes out at the very end of the month, and it's an email newsletter from me letting people know about what's going on with Monster Kid Radio and Monster Rally Media. There's some original content in here. Last time around, I had a review of Kyle Young's documentary, Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction. There's a column that I run called The Creature Connection, looking at different actors and actresses from the Creature from the Black Lagoon franchise and other movies that they've done. It's just fun. I've got classic monster movie trivia questions in there. There's still time to subscribe to the August edition. Again, go to monsterkidradio.net. It's over on the right. Put in your email address, hit subscribe, and you're in. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, already hinted at it, already talked about it, Casey Criswell. You might know him as one of my co-hosts from 1951 Down Place. You might know him as one of the co-hosts of podcasts like Bloody Good Horror or Cinema Fromage. You might know him as somebody who's been griping a lot on Facebook and everywhere else about how he has yet to appear on Monster Kid Radio. It's all in fun, I hope. Anyway, Casey is joining me next week, and we're going to talk about a Doctor Who film. That film is Daleks. Invasion Earth, 2150 A.D. This film was released in 1966 and stars our man, Peter Cushing. That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to talking about that with Casey next week, and I'm looking forward to having you back here checking out the show. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you are an iTunes user and you haven't already done so, maybe throw us a review. And that's especially important. Now, because we are starting to get into the autumn season and October's rolling around, and traditionally iTunes has highlighted horror-themed podcasts on their site, I don't know what metrics they use to decide what shows they're going to put on their main page when they promote Halloween or horror-specific shows, but it would be cool if we got Monster Kid Radio or not, and I assume reviews are one thing that they look at, so you know what to do. Thanks again for listening, and I'd like to remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song 009 Dick Tiki. That belongs to the band The Tiki Creeps. It's on their newest album, Idol Worship. You can find them at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook. However you find them, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. <laughs> <laughs>